Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Intercessory Prayer. Intercessory Prayer. And quite simply, intercessory prayer is the act of praying on behalf of others. So it's a fancy word. It's a little bit of a theological word. It's a word that comes from the Bible itself, and it's described as a category or a type, a way of praying. I would say more a type of prayer. And it's a prayer that is given or sent to the Father, or lifted up is probably the best way of saying that, lifted up on behalf of others. And as I was thinking about intercessory prayer, which we're going to get into here today, and frankly, although it might seem like it's not the theme for the section we're looking at, it is the critical section, it is the critical theme for what we're actually going to cover here today. We're going to wade through some very difficult uh, verses here this morning. And sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the parts that are really hard to understand and miss the main point. The main point is about intercessory prayer. The idea that another believer would care enough about somebody else to lift up a prayer or lift up their eyes, their thoughts, and and direct those prayers to God on behalf of someone else. And when you're thinking about giving a prayer or saying a prayer on behalf of somebody else, what does it presuppose? Well, it presupposes that you would first have a concern for somebody else, that you would have an interest in somebody else, that you would actually take notice of somebody else's well-being, and that you would be moved by the Spirit of God working within you to have enough compassion and care and concern for them that you would bring them boldly or confidently before the throne of grace, that you would lift them up by lifting up your prayers to the Lord. And you think about yourself and your daily life and how easy it is to be captivated and caught up with yourself and your own affairs. The affairs that are going on around you, the world that's going on around you, the things that seem important in the moment, and I'm not saying none of them are, but they have a temporal level of importance. No matter how important they are, they don't have the same eternal level of importance that praying for one another would have. But yet, oftentimes, that busyness of life those concerns for the trials that you're going through, the focus on the other people in your life, but not not with the perspective of lifting them up, but with the perspective of how frustrated you are about them. So instead of praying for them, you, you do think of them, but when you think about them, it's just bitterness and resentment. You do speak of them, but when you speak of them, it's not speaking of them in your prayers. It's speaking of them by way of gossiping about them or complaining about them or criticizing them with no desire or no thought whatsoever that that criticism or complaining or gossiping could ever in any way lift them up. So you're still speaking about somebody, but you're not doing it in a way that could benefit you, and you're not doing it in a way that would benefit them. And friends, that's the default. The default is that when we do think about people, unfortunately, it's not thinking about them from a perspective of how does God want to use me in their life to be a prayer warrior for them to lift them up to the Father in a way that could ultimately benefit them. And so I would suggest that for all of us, this is a very important message to be reminded of the power and the need for intercessory prayer. And also that that's never going to happen if we first don't get our eyes on the Lord so that He can change the way we think about the world and the way we prioritize our thinking so that we would put Him first, we would then put others first, second, and we put ourselves third. And the young kids just as easily could have sang a song called Joy that many of them have been taught here at this church that talks about Jesus and others and you. Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Who knows it? No one. Oh, we've got a few shy hands. They're worried because they think maybe I'll call on them. (laughs) Jesus and others and you. And the reality is that as you think about J is for Jesus because he has first place, O is for others you meet day to day, and Y is for you in whatever you do. Put yourself third, and that spells joy. It might be you meet face to face, I'm not sure. Somebody face to face thinks. The point being is that's something we had to be taught. That's not something that we knew naturally. That's not something our flesh defaults to. That's something the Spirit of God has to produce in us. And he'll never do that if we're not 
walking with our eyes and our gaze fixed firmly on him, allowing then as a yielded vessel his spirit to work inside of us to produce change in us that would make us different than how we would normally be by default so that we would be a reflection of him instead of a reflection of who we were in Adam. So when you're thinking about having that concern for others, that posture of prayer, that prayer with a concern for others becomes more prevalent as one grows in his faith. And Christ is reflected in his thinking and corresponding behavior. So as you grow in your faith and you mature in your faith, these are the kind of prayers that become more common in your life. Because the Spirit of God is the one directing your prayer. And we were talking about praying according to God's will. Praying as a byproduct of enjoying this intimate fellowship with God, which this whole letter of 1 John has been about. And so now as I pray as directed by him, I'm naturally going to pray less and less about myself and I'm going to pray more and more about others because God is most interested in people. So if God is working in my life and working through me, naturally he's going to give me a concern that is most interested in people instead of anything else. And so as I grow, as you grow in your faith, these types of prayers, intercessory prayers, should become more prevalent. The other comment to make or observation to make is the presence of intercessory prayer in your life, it's the byproduct of a spirit-directed life. And I've already spoken to that or commented on that a little bit. But sometimes you think that you hear a message like this and your takeaway is the wrong thing. You hear a message like this and your takeaway ends up being, boy, <clears throat> I got to... I've got to get motivated to pray for more people in my life. You heard what the preacher said. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is as you respond to the Lord personally in your own life, as you get your eyes on him, as you enjoy intimate fellowship with him, as a byproduct of that, his spirit is going to give you a heart for people, a greater and greater concern for people, an interest in people, a love for people. And as that happens you're naturally then going to want to bring to the Lord their concerns that are observed by you in their life. Why? Because the Spirit of God has changed your thinking. So it becomes a natural byproduct of a Spirit-led, Spirit-directed, Spirit-enabled, Spirit-empowered life. That's the kind of prayers that are produced in and through you as God's concern for people becomes your concern for people. In some ways, you could say that the presence of intercessory prayers is an indicator of a personal walk of fellowship with the Lord. Because the one who is personally, presently, walking in dependence on the Lord and being led by God's Spirit, that person's going to have a heart for people. And that person's heart for people is going to be reflected in their prayer. Now last week we observed the availability of direct access to God through prayer. And as we looked at that, we were reminded that that access to God through prayer, that direct access to God, it was a reminder of God's intense interest in his children. The God of the universe would care about you. He would care about me. He would be interested in what you have to say. He would hear you. And what did we also observe? He would answer you. And even, again, This song, I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but who am I that the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? I said last week, I don't know why God cares about us so. I don't know why he loved us so. I don't know why he's intensely interested in me, but he is. I don't know why he's intensely interested in you, but he is. And so as we take in that truth, then we have the opportunity to either respond to it or just let it go in one ear and out the other. Let it just fall by the wayside. Not take advantage of the realities that we're reminded of time and time again in the Bible that God is a personal, intimate God who wants to live life with you. One aspect of living life with you is he wants to hear from you. As he hears from you, he says, I'll answer those prayers when they're in alignment with my will, which they will be if my spirit is directing and leading in your life. And when you think about this access of prayer that we looked at last week, it's a necessary 
component of intimate fellowship. There could be no intimate fellowship with God apart from direct access to God, a a line of communication being open. Think of the relationships in your life that you would describe as intimate. You got one? Okay, if you have one, the reason or a key component to why it's intimate is because there's regular communication. Or there had been at some point in the past. There are some people that you're very close to that you don't talk to necessarily all the time. But at some point in your life, you built a relationship of intimacy that has now continued through the years, even though your lives might have drifted in different directions. And for those people, if it was authentic to begin with, when you come back into contact with them, is it forced? Is conversation difficult? Is it hard to fall back into some kind of a closeness with them? That hasn't been my experience. If the foundation was authentic to begin with and there had been that intimacy that was the product of a lot of communication and spending time together and investing each other, getting to know one another, sharing your thoughts and hearing their thoughts, and as that exchange took place over time, you grew closer and closer together and absent some kind of a major breakup in that relationship just because you distanced yourself due to geography or a change of job or whatever happened, oftentimes you can fall right back into those friendships when time permits and when the occasion provides itself. And God is saying, effectively, you cannot have this intimate fellowship with me that is the key to your experiencing maximum, maximum joy in your Christian life if you never talk to me, if you don't involve me through communication in your thoughts and you don't direct any of your thinking toward me There's no way for us to have that intimacy that I want to have with you. So that was last week, and I spent a little bit of time there, you know, covering that or reviewing that. But in today's verses, John's now going to identify intercessory prayer as a specific example of the appropriate use of the access that is afforded to you through that intimate fellowship or intimate relationship with God. So as you have that intimate fellowship with God, John started out in verses 14 and 15 by saying you have this direct access and this direct access to God is a wonderful thing. Now he's going to give you an example of what would be an appropriate use of that access. And he's going to hold up intercessory prayer as the first example of what an appropriate use or what the best use of that access to God would be that each believer has. And so we're going to turn, if you haven't already, to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to do a little bit of review, not a lot. We're just going to review the two verses from last week by reading them. And then we're going to jump into verse 16 and, Lord willing, we'll get through verse 17 also. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, Now this is the confidence, or we said boldness, that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we have a anything, but then we have a limit to it. A limit being according to his will. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. So we have anything that we ask in verse 14 and whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him, meaning he'll answer those prayers. He'll answer every prayer in the affirmative that is asked in alignment with his purpose, his will, his plan, his word, which will always be the case when the Spirit of God is undertaking to be the one that is influencing the nature of your thinking, the the quality of your thinking, and the nature of your prayers. Now, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning, now here's a specific application of this access that we have to God, which is an unbelievable blessing. Now, here's an application for it. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life For those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you. There's some passages you come to that you'd just like to take a pass on. This one's a little bit hard. I think... I think it, the explanation that I studied out here that 
I, I think it'll make sense, so let's dig into it. But this is hard. This is tough sledding no matter who you are. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. So if anyone sees his brother sinning, the first, a lot of this is, is simple. There's just a few phrases that are, are hard. So if anyone sees his brother sinning, we have if anyone sees, to start off here, there's many other examples that could have been given about an application of this prayer access that the believer has to God. So he says you have this access and God will answer your prayers and then this is the application that he chose. It could have been anything. Now you say, why did he choose this this example? An example of observing a brother or sister in Christ who is sinning. Why would he pick this? And I think the answer to that is that he has been teaching about enjoying practical or present practical fellowship with God. And he had taught about, and he's taught extensively in this letter already about, how sin has the effect of breaking that fellowship. And so then naturally, as he talks about intercessory prayer, this would be a perfect example of what somebody would need to pray for for others because that sin in their life would be breaking fellowship with the Father. It would be the kind of thing that would interfere with the purpose statement of the book which is that all believers can enjoy, they have the opportunity to enjoy, maximum joy in their Christian lives if they would live life in intimate fellowship with the Father. But he's shared many, many different examples and scenarios where people would think that that's what they're doing, but they're not really doing that. And many of those scenarios tied back to or came back to the idea that a person who is presently living a life of rebellion to God's standards of what is right, we could call that sin, that that person is not presently enjoying fellowship with God at the exact same time they're presently rebelling and rejecting God by doing their own thing, by living a life according to their own standards instead of living a life as led and directed by God according to his standards. And so with that in mind, it makes a lot of sense that if the book is about maximizing joy by enjoying fellowship with the Father, and if sin is very often disruptive to that, that seeing somebody else sinning, that that would be an occasion where you would want to take advantage of this amazing access that you have to God through prayer and bring them boldly to the throne of grace so that God could bring about or it could be used by the Lord to bring about change in their life. Now, we said God's not going to do that against their will, but yet somehow God is going to, he says, factor in our prayers into the affairs of mankind. He says that our prayers are effective. He, he says that he'll always answer our prayers when they're prayed in a manner that's consistent with his word and his will. And so we have that, I think, is the reason why he's using this specific illustration. And he talked about the impact of sin in 1 John 1.8, 1 John 2.1, and, and more passages, so you could remind the, yourself of them again. But if anyone sees, we have this word if. It's a third-class condition in the Greek language, which I don't bring that up to, to bore you or make you think I understand Greek all that well. I've, I've studied it, uh, but I don't understand it that well. But I bring it up just because the Greek language has a way of letting us know more information about this, the conditional nature of the word if. Now, sometimes if it's a third-class condition, it says this may or may not happen. Sometimes it's a first-class condition. It's being said as if it were a statement of truth. So if, and we assume this is true. Or if can be used in a second class where if and we assume this is not true. But then the third class, which is most like the way we use if, we often use if mostly in a conditional way. It may or may not happen. So without any degree of certainty wrapped up in it. But in the, in the Greek language, there can be more certainty wrapped up in it as it's stated as at least a fact for the purpose of argument. But here, if, and this may or may not happen, anyone could refer to any other believer, sees his brother sinning. So sees here indicates firsthand knowledge rather than suspicion. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but 
have this come to my mind. There is no aspect of supervising, inspecting, or investigating present here. We can be really nosy folks, can't we? We can love to get in other people's business. If anyone sees his brothers sinning, this is about becoming aware of something as a natural or normal result of normal interactions. It doesn't have this idea of we're out there searching for or investigating other people's lives trying to find sin in their lives. God never called us to be fruit inspectors. He never called us to be sin inspectors. But there are going to be times where you're just having normal interactions with people, brothers and sisters in Christ, and you become aware of some obvious sin in their life. Now, again, it's labeled as sin. This isn't about speculation. This isn't about suspicion. This is some black and white area where there's sin in another believer's life. And so we have that here, his brother. This is written about believers. We're not right. The whole book is written to believers, about believers, enjoying intimate fellowship with the Father. We're not going to change that now. So this is about a brother in Christ. Not an ex-brother or a potential brother, as some people have tried to twist this passage to somehow make this about authentic believers and inauthentic believers. It's about a brother in Christ. And as a brother in Christ, you have witnessed another brother or sister in Christ who is sinning. It clearly references a fellow believer or one sibling in the family of God. And this is sort of tongue-in-cheek. This is not an ex-brother. There's... There's not a passage in the Bible that you're going to be able to point to that brings about this idea of an ex-brother or this idea of having to be resaved a second time or reborn again spiritually a second time. You're either a brother or you're not a brother. When the word brother is used in this type of a context, it's never used to refer to anyone besides a fellow believer. Now, what are you seeing that brother doing? Well, we're seeing them sinning in this context. Now, note that the nature or description of any particular sin is not given. John's not trying to be overly specific. In, in fact, he's being intentionally vague, I would say. So if anyone sees his brother sinning, there's not this idea of being Inspector Gadget or the kind of guy that's trying to sleuth out who's sinning and who's not sinning. It's just this idea that in the natural course of living life with other believers, which is God's plan for us, that we would go about life Shoulder to shoulder, living life with other believers as part of a local church, as part of a family of faith, as part of beyond the local church, a part of a greater community of people of faith. That's what I love about Bible Camp is we step outside even the bounds of this local church to, to share our faith Uh, to enjoy the common faith that we have with other believers from many other different churches. And it's, it's wonderful to be able to share what you have in common with people of like precious faith in other communities, in other areas that are not directly related to this church sometimes. And that's very amazing to be reminded of that. So then what kind of... We see a a brother who's sinning. We don't know what kind of sin it is, but we're not going to have two categories of sin that are going to be given here. So when you see a sin which does not lead to death, and then there's going to be sin leading to death. So sin leading to death and sin not leading to death. And just to help us a little bit with there, leading to is better understood as punished by or maybe disciplined by, or it's, it's bringing about or it's causing, it's causing death. So leading to death. And as a preview, the distinction is between sins for which death is a rapid accelerated or immediate consequence and sins for which it is not. See, all sin eventually leads to death. The curse of sin that was spread to all mankind, it brought about death, physical death, and spiritual death. And so that's unavoidable in the sense that it's appointed unto every man to die. Apart from the rapture, we all are going to die one day. Apart from the Lord taking us home in the rapture, we're all going to experience death. Now, there's a few other examples or exceptions to that, people who are translated or taken to heaven without seeing death, but not many. And so this is just a natural part of the 
sin curse. It says, for by one man sin entered the world, and then death came with sin, and then death spread to all men because all sinned. We inherited that death or separation by birth, and we inherited it by choice, by choosing to rebel against God and to sin ourselves. That created this, a separation between us and God as God was perfectly holy and we had now become identified with a race of sinners, the race of Adam, and we'd been identified with our own sinful choices too. And so now God being holy, he can't have direct relationship with sin. And so there was this conundrum or this problem that we found ourselves in where we were desperate, we were drowning, we were hopeless and helpless and hellbound. We had nothing to look forward to other than an eternity spent separated from God. And at just the right time, the Bible says that God sent his only begotten son as the solution to our sin problem. As Jesus became sin for us, he bore our sins in his own body. He died in our place. He became our substitute. Jesus became something he was not so that we could become something we are not. He became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. As his righteousness was credited to our account, not on the basis of how much we had done for God, but on the basis of our faith in his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And as we put our faith in his provision of a rescue, a means of rescue, as we put our faith in him alone, God said, My son's righteousness is now going to be applied to your account. My son's blood is going to be applied to your account. He's going to have died in your place. The the penalty that was owed, the the debt that was owed is going to have been um, satisfied by the sacrifice of another. So that God in his justice could look at the substitutionary payment of Christ and he could say, I'm not overlooking sin. A just God couldn't overlook sin. I'm not overlooking it, but I'm applying or I'm seeing that the payment of another has been credited to the account of the guilty so that the guilty can be found to be now in a right standing with me, not on the basis of what he's done for me, but on the substitutionary basis of what my son has done to credit his righteousness to that account that was otherwise in the black. You see how wonderful that message is? You see how simple that message is? Christ had to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We're going to be covering Psalm 23 at camp, at all the camps. That's going to be the theme for the camps this summer. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That's what I shall not want means. See, God from the very beginning, he had to provide for mankind what mankind could never provide for himself. That was true with justification or how could a sinner ever be found to be in a right standing with a holy God. And that's true as we go about living the Christian life too. God continues to have to provide for man what man cannot provide for himself. That's why you live the Christian life the same way you got saved. By complete dependence, that's what the word faith really means, complete dependence on God's provision for you to meet the need that you could never meet. That's how the Christian life is lived. Not by trying so hard to be a good Christian, but by allowing God to work in and through you to change you into something that you're not. To, con- to transform you over time into the image of His Son. That is what it is all about. But it had to, that's a long segue, I guess, from our conversation about everybody facing death. Death was in front of all men. So in a sense, there's sin leading to death and sin not leading to death, but all sin, of course, leads to death. So the, the, the greater focus here, if you're going to tune me out, if you're starting to, starting to lose your attention here, it's that there's a distinction that's going to be made from a rapid or accelerated or more immediate physical death and one for which that's not the consequence. So sin that leads to an accelerated, more rapid or immediate physical death or one that that isn't the outcome or the consequence. So there's other views, other thoughts of it. That's, that's how I understand this passage, and that's a little bit of a preview. So what kind of death is this talking about? Well, it, isn't, it likely isn't spiritual death. Now again, there, there are certain passages of Scripture that are difficult to interpret. And we look to the immediate context. We look to the, the more general context of the book. We look to the more broad context of the Bible, we look for 
clues and, and ideas and cross-references that would help us to understand difficult passages. And we come up with, as ideally as led by the Spirit of God, we come up with an interpretation that is accurate. But sometimes there's room for difference of opinion. This is, I think, the most likely explanation from my perspective. It isn't spiritual death. Now, think about the two kinds of spiritual death. Think about temporal spiritual death. All sin causes a loss of fellowship. So there is no sin not leading to death if this is talking about temporal spiritual separation or death. It couldn't be talking about this. Because the whole point of the book is that sin separates. That sin, sin interferes with fellowship. That an ungodly attitude interferes with fellowship. That hating your brother interferes with fellowship. These things don't promote fellowship. They break down that fellowship. When you're not presently enjoying fellowship with God, you're presently enjoying a practical separation. Not a positional separation, but you have a relational separation in the sense that you're still related, but you're separated in terms of you're not in close union with each other anymore. And as that separation is there brought about by sin, brought about by rebellion, brought about by being unwilling to live life or include God in your life, that is causing temporal spiritual death in that moment. So I, I don't believe that that it could be what this is talking about. And you see, you cannot presently reject and exclude God while at the same time enjoying intimate closeness and fellowship with him. And here's a verse from 1 John, the first chapter that we saw. If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we're presently walking in darkness, then we lie. And we're not presently practicing the truth. It's incompatible. So that would be the equivalent of temporal spiritual death, at least in that, in that moment where there's a break in that fellowship. Well, how about... Eat, How about eternal death? Spiritual death. How about eternal spiritual death? So if it's not talking about temporal spiritual death, how about eternal spiritual death? A sin that leads to eternal spiritual death. And I would say it can't be that either because every believer, and this is written to believers, remember you observed a brother that was sinning. So if you observed a brother that was sinning, he's already a child of God. A child of God can never experience eternal spiritual separation from God. It's not possible. Because every believer has permanently, positionally already passed from death to life. There is no sin that could ever change that. That's the doctrine of eternal security that we talk about here so often. You're not secure because of the strength of your faith. You're secure because of the object of your faith. You can have that assurance of the security that is a fixed fact based on your faith in Christ alone. The moment you put your faith in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone, the moment you do that, you are sealed in the family of God as the Spirit of God seals you and says, I'll never let you go. Now that's God doing the sealing, not you. It's not about how tightly you decided to cling to God. He sealed you. So that's what can give you then, that's a fact, that's called eternal security. What can give you assurance of that salvation? You can have the personal realization of that fact as you reflect on the idea that it's him doing the work, not you. Now as I see that, it's him that, whose faithfulness is at issue, not my own faithfulness that's at issue. I can have that boldness and confidence that I'm a child of God and I'm going to heaven when I die. Because he is a faithful God. Because he's holding on to me. So there's nothing that ever can separate me from the love of God. Absolutely nothing that could do that. And you see that, given what John has previously written, the idea of losing salvation in our context here, it's clearly the farthest thing from John's mind. As he writes to believers to encourage them to walk in fellowship with the Lord, this whole book, nothing about it has been about losing your salvation or even how to be saved, as a, as a focus anyway, in a first tense justification application. So this was about first tense salvation. This is about eternal spiritual life or death. In the Gospel of John that was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing you would have life in his name. A book of evangelism. But John 5.24 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word, you can't believe in something you don't hear, and then believes or responds to, accepts as true, is convinced to trust in him who sent me, has, as a present position, everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment. Not might not, shall not, but has, again, an absolute fixed fact, but has passed positionally from death to life, and that can never change. So this can't be talking about eternal spiritual death. So what's the alternative? It seems best understood to be referring to physical death. Sin, death that is, sin that is leading to death. So that's what that death is most likely about. This is the only other viable, I would say viable alternative. And we're going to look at that a little bit more closely here in a second. Now, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death. So that's the first category we're talking about. A sin that does not lead to an accelerated physical death. What is, the, what is that believer to do for the other believer? He will ask. It's a reference to prayer by an observant believer for his sinning fellow believer. And you think about that. You can observe all kinds of things. You can observe uh, things in a church that are good, you can observe things in a church that are bad. I tell people, I hope you're not coming to this church because you think this is Utopia Bible Church. A few, a few of you could set them straight, right? Th- that's not the case. Every church is a church that is filled with individuals who have put their faith, well, not every church. This church is a church that is primarily filled with people who have put their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ but their sin nature wasn't eradicated. And so they, continue, they now can be described as saved sinners. And because of that, and their, and their pastor is a saved sinner. And so because of that, we have warts and wrinkles and body odor. Don't look at your neighbor. <laughs> Come on. That was rude. That was very rude. We have flaws and wrinkles and things that are imperfect. And so, as you're, as you're looking at it from that perspective, this, the whole idea here is not about having this judgmentalism where we're looking for flaws in people so that we can have this self-righteous sense of, oh, I'm going to go pray for that person. Oh, aren't they lucky? That, that you could be extremely judgmental and critical and looking for flaws and then you would whitewash it with this sanctimonious kind of an attitude that, well, I'm going to go pray for that person as you tell five other people about what you witnessed. We should pray for that person, though. If you're motivated and led by the Spirit of God, as you observe these flaws and imperfections, you would say nothing about it other than to the one who could do something about it. You would say nothing about it other than communicating it and your concern about it and your concern for them to the one who can do something about it. There's nothing more cancerous to a church than gossip and complaining and criticizing. Bring it to the Lord, the one who can do something about it. And then beyond that, perhaps there's a a proper way of dealing with disgruntlement or whatever else. Come to Come to the leadership about it. But complaining to each other about it does nothing to build up. It just tears down. Gossiping about each other's faults does nothing to build up. It can only tear down. And if, and if you don't get a hold of that and God doesn't get a hold of our thinking, it ends up permeating and destroying and undermining a local family of faith that should be about being tightly bound together in, in a way that we're one body that's striving together and moving together. And that we're connected so deeply that we're, our only concern when we see something that's not going as it should is to give it to the Lord, bring it to the Lord. But what should our motivation be for doing that? We should be motivated by the love of God. 
And then that love's effect on our thinking so that it would have produced in us a love for one another. That's what should motivate this intercessory, intercessory prayer. And John spent all this time in chapter 4 talking about how we should love one another the way God loves us. Well, that should be the mindset behind your prayer too. I'm not going to turn to it for the sake of time. Now, what is the objective that you should have in mind as you're praying? Well, that your brother would be restored to present fellowship with God and the enjoyment that accompanies that intimacy. That should be your objective. That the present fellowship with God could be restored in the life of that believer that you've observed that happened to be struggling in that moment. And so you see this verse, I think, is on point. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... I've always kind of, well, I'm not going to go there. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And that's a great verse, and I would say implied in that is that this process of restoration cannot be successfully undertaken without prayer. Now, how, how can you pull that from that verse? Because Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not going to involve him, if you're not going to involve God in the process, then it's not going to be successful. So implied in every obstacle that a Christian faces is that they would first turn to the Lord in prayer. That they would first involve him in that discussion about what is going on. Now, what will the result be? So we have, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask... He's obviously asking God. He will ask, and what will the result be? He, God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. So there's two ways to take this or two aspects to this life that God grants in response to the intercessory prayer offered on behalf of a sinning fellow believer. One of them could be this, that that believer might be spared the consequence of physical death in contrast to the outcome associated with sin leading to death, which we'll get to in a second. The other could be spiritual restoration to fellowship or return to partaking of the divine nature. So in that sense, that person would have life or get life as they're restored to a manner of living in time that is or represents the eternal godly quality of living that God wants to manifest in and through every believer's life. So there's two possibilities right there. I guess I personally believe that it refers to both aspects given the presently having eternal life emphasis of verse 13. So just in this immediate context, John was talking about that you may know that you have presently eternal life and that you may continue to believe presently in the name of the Son of God. They're talking about a walk of faith. I'm living by faith. I'm living by faith in God's provision for me and this recognition that God wants to manifest through me these godly qualities and characteristics of life that come from God himself as produced by his spirit. So in that context, very easily, it could be referring to that restoration of fellowship or that quality of life in time. But the flip side of it is in contrast to sins that do lead to death. And if we interpret that to be physical death or accelerated physical death, then it could easily be talking about being spared that and getting life in the sense of retaining or continuing on with the present physical life. So I think it, I think it in, involves aspects of both because continuing on with a present physical life absent a restored fellowship with God wouldn't have any value or purpose either. So then we move on to this next part of the verse. He will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to ne- death. Next statement, there is sin leading to death. There is, sin, there is sin leading to death. And I already gave you a preview of this, but it seems most fitting to take this as accelerated physical death, which would either come by way of divine discipline or the natural result of sin. And when you think about the natural result of sin accelerated, you don't have to be too creative to think about 
sinful thinking or sinful that would lead to sinful behavior that would actually shorten your life. Think about that. You can come up with examples. Sadly, you hear about it pretty, pretty often. I guarantee everyone in this room knows somebody who drank themselves to death. I guarantee everyone in this room knows somebody who overdosed. If you don't, you need to meet more people. If you get out there and meet people, introduce yourself to people, talk to people, show a love and concern for people, you're going to run into people who are suffering with those things. So could it refer to just an accelerated death by way of the natural result of sinful choices? Yeah. Could it refer to divine discipline as we'll look at a few examples of it? I think, yeah, it could. So physical death as a consequence of sin is taught throughout Scripture. I would say the total number of times that it's talked about is relatively small given the volume of other things that are talked about. But are there Old Testament examples of certain types of sin that was punishable by death according to the Mosaic Law? The answer is yes. You can look at those passages. We're going to skip them for time's sake because I've been teaching through Deuteronomy on Wednesday night. Listen to them online if you want to kind of get an overview or a summary of some of the Levitical law and the Mosaic law and the contrast between the Mosaic law and the law and grace and the age of grace or the dispensation of grace. We're getting to our last couple of, I think there's two or three chapters left in Deuteronomy going chapter by chapter uh, through that book. And so that Absolutely, you can find examples where the consequence of sin is physical death or God says that should be the consequence of certain specific actual sins. Then if you move on to other examples, in the New Testament, you have the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Most of you are familiar with that, but if you want to make a note, you can read about that in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. Another example is spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says people are suffering premature death as a result of their behavior or their mistreatment of others at the Lord's Supper or at the communion in celebration of communion table. That's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-nine through 30. Again, for the sake of time, we're going to move, move on, but that's, that's another New Testament example. This, I think, is more important. John never identifies probably intentionally, I probably should have put probably intentionally, or perhaps intentionally, or most likely intentionally, that's what I would say. What exactly constitutes sin leading to death? What exactly he's referring to? Anyway, it's difficult, I would say, to find any passage in the New Testament where you could ascertain exactly what that would be talking about in terms of an immediate physical or an accelerated physical death brought about by a certain kind of thinking or a certain type of behavior that is inconsistent with God's standards of what is right. So I would say that I don't necessarily find this example, this explanation that I've just given to you to be all that satisfying. And so you could be sitting there saying the same thing. And I would say if you develop some additional insights about it, come, come talk to me about it. But that's, I guess that's the gist of it. I would say this is the takeaway. The takeaway seems to be that certain sin or prolonged rebellion can be so serious that it results in God taking a brother or sister home and I couldn't fit it prematurely. Certain sin or prolonged rebellion can be so serious that it results in God taking a brother or sister home prematurely. How would we ever know? We'd have no way of knowing when or if that still happens. But we know there were biblical examples of it happening. And so, I guess I personally have, haven't spent a lot of time dwelling on, on this, but I would try to answer this question for you. Why would God do this? Why would God do that? Why would he take somebody home prematurely? Well, I have to have a caveat in front of that too. There is no way to know for sure. It's not directly stated. But one possibility is that the gravity of certain sin makes God's attempt to work on that believer's heart impossible while they are here on earth. Solution, God takes that believer home. 
if you can't see it clearly, if you can't understand it clearly, if you can't come to trust him here, and you're his child, you will come to see it clearly and understand it clearly and trust him fully there. And so in some way, it's a reflection of God's mercy, isn't it? That God would just say, all right, child, (laughs) I'm just going to take you home to be with me. And in some ways, what a mercy, what a, what an example of God's grace that he would even do that. So a sin leading to death. So we get to this section now, which is hard too. I do not say we should pray about that. So there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. There's a sin that does lead to death. But I do not say we should pray about that. So what does that mean? Well, there's at least two views on this clause. One holds that there is nothing, including praying, a believer can do for the one sinning in the case of a sin that leads unto death. Basically meaning that their lot is already sealed. If they are sinning a sin that leads unto death, then God is already going to take them home and your prayers aren't going to change that. That's sort of the way that view works. And the other is that John is now explaining what the believer's response should not be toward his fellow believer. So he's just told them there is such a thing as sin that leads to death. Now, your response should be to bring them before the Lord through intercessory prayer. That's the first part of the verse. Now he's saying, he's ending the verse. This is, this is the other view. He's going to end the verse by saying, and this shouldn't be your response. So this view holds that when a believer observes his brother sinning, he should not pray that God would divinely discipline that brother with physical death. Now, listen, I know there's a few of you that are praying that God would take me home. And you know what? Keep praying that. Because in a sense, shouldn't we all be eagerly looking forward to the day that God can call us home? So that's a lot better than other things you could say about me. If you're going to spend your time praying that God would take me home, I'll take it. There's probably better things in time you could pray for, though, for me and for others. And John is saying, don't take this perspective that when you see somebody sinning, you're going to pray that God would take them home. You're praying for restoration. You're praying in an intercessory way that God could bring about change in their thinking and change in their lives so that they could come back to enjoying that intimacy of fellowship that they had lost while they were doing their own thing. I think this view comes from some of these translations. New American Standard says, translates this sentence, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. You're not requesting for death as the outcome for the sin. And so that's the two views. I don't really see one view as preferable to the other. I can see why both would be, would be correct. And so I guess I'll leave it at that. Sometimes, sometimes we just have to come to a place where we say, God didn't, doesn't owe us an explanation for everything. He says he'll illuminate our thinking and we keep praying for that. But we don't have infinite minds. We don't have eternal minds. We can't see or understand everything the way he sees or understands things. So, Sometimes you just put it, do the best you can with it, and then, like I like to say, you kind of maybe jot it down in a journal, and then you kind of just fold the, close the journal up and put it on a shelf. And someday you maybe come back to that and you say, I have a different understanding or more insights into this than I did previously, but that's what I have on that. So this is a very short verse that we'll finish with. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So this is a bit of a conclusion. It has, it's like a, not an afterthought, but a bit of a restatement of what has already been said. The translation here is a little confusing, but the idea is just this. Although all unrighteousness is sin, not all sin leads to immediate physical death. So he's summarizing what he just said. There are some sins that lead to death and there are other sins that do not. Now, all unrighteousness is sin. It's just that God doesn't handle it all the same. Some causes accelerated physical death is my interpretation. Uh, Some sin does not. 
And he never identifies which does or which doesn't. So I think the other thing is he just got done saying that not all sin leads to death, and so he might want to remind them. So why would he remind believers that all unrighteousness is sin? Because if they get the perspective that some sin is more serious than other sin, then they're not going to see all sin is equally offensive to God and all sin is equally destructive to their personal walk with the Lord in time. If you start to be looking to characterize sin in that way, it's all destructive and it's all offensive to God. So it indicates that all sin is serious. John wrote this due to concern that the distinction between sin unto death and sin not unto death might lead some to think some sin was not serious. So that's, it's kind of thrown in there as a way to say, but all sin is dangerous. Even though, even though some sin doesn't lead to accelerated physical death, it's all catastrophic to the faith walk of the Christian in time. And I believe that's what he's getting at. So though you cannot know exactly what sin or sins lead to death, every believer can confidently intercede through prayer on behalf of his I think it was supposed to say his or her brothers and sisters in Christ. So you can get lost in the, the detail of sins unto death and sins not unto death. That's not even the main focus of this. This is the main focus of it right here. Although there are aspects of this passage that are difficult to understand precisely, avoid losing sight of the primary point about having a concern for your faith siblings and confidence in God's willingness to hear and answer your intercessory prayers on their behalf. That is the primary point. So it's interesting as you read even commentaries on this section of Scripture, so much of the discussion is focused on sin to death, sin unto death, and sin not unto death. That's not even the primary point. John in 14 and 15 just gets done telling you you have this amazing privilege that the God of the universe cares about you enough to listen to your prayers. He hears you. He'll answer your prayers when those prayers are consistent with his will. What a promise. And on the heels of that promise, he says, now with the focus on fellowship for you and your fellow brothers with the Lord in time, I'm going to give this example of how you could utilize that access in a way that would promote the well-being of others and put your focus on others and get your focus off of yourself. Now intercede on behalf of other believers in a way that, in a way that would lift them up when you see that they're struggling. Forget about the sin unto death or not unto death. You see that they're struggling. Now lift them up in prayer to the Lord because He's the one who can do something about it and He promises that He hears your prayers. And that he will answer when those prayers are in accordance with his will. That's the, that's the point. That's the thing to take away from this. And, and maybe you have a better understanding or idea of what the sin unto death or sin not leading to death is all about. Again, I'm, I actually am interested in hearing your view. But that's the focus. This is a book about fellowship with each other. He says, I, I'm writing this so that we could have fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. Do you see that that's what this is all about? You have this amazing privilege of intercessory prayer. But remember, those prayers don't come naturally. There's a certain kind of prayer that does come naturally. And it sounds something like this. God, help me. (laughs) Is that a good prayer? Yes, it is a good prayer. Another kind of prayer that comes naturally is, God, fix this. (laughs) Another kind of prayer that comes naturally is, God, provide this. God, give me. Give me, give me, give me. What comes less naturally is a prayer that says, I love the people that you have put in my life as brothers and sisters in Christ so much that I want to take this opportunity to use the access that you've given me to lift them up boldly before you. That's, that's a sign of growth. That's what God's after in our thinking. And that mentality is something that only the Spirit of God can provide. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for this Word that we've been able to look at today, although it was difficult and although maybe I didn't get it 100% right,
pray that the primary point could be useful, that we would apply it to our daily lives, that we would trust you, we want to live life in close union with you, that we wouldn't exclude you from our thinking or from our lives, that we want to take you with you, take you with us wherever we go, that we would want to talk to you frequently, that we would want to allow that intimacy of relationship to grow over time so that we'd draw closer and closer and nearer to near and nearer to you in a way that would impact our lives in time and would benefit those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.